You are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. I think we're live. <laughs> Lori, are we live? Hey, we're live right on time. I love that when tech cooperates with us. I'm Meg Riley here in Minneapolis where it is so cloudy. I'm about to scream. I feel like I live in the Northwest again. You know, global climate change has made it warmer here. So I haven't even worn my heavy mittens or I'm not wearing my down coat. I'm just wearing my fall coat, which means it's about 35 here, which for here is balmy, which I love, except it means there's no sun. Usually this time of year is like seven below and your nostrils freeze and your eyeballs freeze when you go out, but it is bright and sunny. And I might be ending up getting one of those lights. I don't know. Aisha, how are you out there in the Northwest? I'm Aisha Hauser and I'm in Seattle, Washington. And for the, I've been here seven, I will have been here seven years this summer. And this week was the first time that I thought about getting one of the sunlights, the, because it has, it has been dark and rainy for days and days and days. And it's the, somebody posted it's the 57th day in January. And so all those 57 days, uh, the never ending month uh, has been dark and cloudy and I had and we've had obviously rain it's the northwest but this just felt like it's hasn't like this cloud just won't leave and so I don't know that I will because I think they said it's going to be sunny this this weekend we'll see Christina how are you hi everyone I'm Christina Rivera I'm coming to you from Charlottesville Virginia where it's just yeah it's just black you know that's just the I think there should be an official weather term that's just black. It's uh, kind of overcast, it's cold, it's not really doing anything that you can really like get excited about. Like I, I do get excited about snow because we get it like two or three times a winter and it, we get great snow because it's here, everything shuts down and it's gone in like a day or a day and a half. People don't know how to drive in it so they just all stay at home. And there's like one snow plow for all of Virginia um, that, you know, just might come by, might not, who knows. So yeah, just kind of blush. Michael, how you doing? I'm doing well. This is Michael Tino in Mount Kisco, New York. And Christina, you're making me think fondly of my days at North Carolina, because uh, that's the way it was in Durham too. But here in New York, we've got plenty of snowplows. Um, and it is gorgeous. Um, you might be able to see the bright blue sky reflected in the window behind me. That is the reflection from the window in my office, which is up there. And um, if it weren't 20 degrees outside, I think I'd be coming to you live from outside um, because it is beautiful. It is a beautiful winter day here in New York. And um, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, it is the 700th of January. We're good. So, and Lori Stone Sertowski, you are doing tech one more time, or are you with us for a while now? Um, I'm I'm here for today, I, and we'll take each week as it goes. So, um, Tonya just got back from Meadville, but uh, there's a, a virus accompanied them, and so I'm here for today, and I'm coming from. A little tiny town in the middle of Illinois called Canton, um, Illinois, uh, for I'm here for a family thing. And I'm usually from Phoenix, but I you can also find me over on YouTube in our chat and in Twitter uh, today. So we look forward to having people join us. We've already got eight people live. So yay, yay our stalwart viewers. And um, our guest today is Chris Rothbauer. And before we get to Chris, and Chris, um, Aisha will be introducing you and our topic, and I'm excited about that. But I wanted to say, I saw Just Mercy this week. I don't know if others have seen the movie about Brian Stevenson. Uh, and um, if you haven't, I really commend it to you. It's really well done. He was the Ware Lecture at GA a few years ago. And... 
You know, it was a really good week to see it because it reminded me that what we're watching right now in the Senate of not wanting to hear witnesses and not caring what actually happened is not an anomaly for what's called the U.S. justice system, that in fact, anyone who is not in power knows that system incredibly well. And I think what's different is that it's so visible that it's white people who are being dissed this time. But um, it's a really, it's a good week to see that and get some perspective. And also to remind people, if you see it and you think, I want to do something to change this, to remember about Worthy Now and the CLF prison ministry, that um, our prisoners who we, CLF, provide stuff for in writing, um, we can't visit them. And so we always love it when local congregations get involved and go visit. It was moving to me to be looking at the Montgomery prison because our former prison chaplain, Mandy Goheen, lived in Montgomery and was visiting someone on death row there. And um, in fact, she one time when she went, turned out to have put her vitamins, not, or not her vitamins, her prescription medicines weren't in their medical bottle. They were in a Monday, Tuesday thing. And her car got completely taken apart with dogs. She got searched and she was never allowed to see um, the young man on death row. She's forbidden forever. Uh, from seeing that young man again because she did not have prescription medicine in the right bottle. And just to remind you that the authoritarian nature that is becoming very, very visible to all of us right now has been very visible to many, many people for a really long time. And so for me, part of remaining hopeful or remaining believing that what I do matter is a good knowledge of history and what actually happened so that I'm not uh, feeling like, oh, this is the worst, I'm the biggest victim in the world, um, to get some perspective. Christina, you had some talk about. Yeah, and I'll just follow up with that, that, um, you know, that story reminds me of trying to visit uh, people in the LA County system and Los Angeles system in which they count on having a certain number of um, people who they've caged in buses uh, being transported each day just around um, because they don't have enough um, legal housing for them. And so there were times where you would try and go visit somebody and they would be on a bus going somewhere um, or you try and go visit someone and they had been transferred and nobody could tell you for months where they had been transferred to. And by the time you found out where they had been transferred to, um, there was always the possibility that they had been transferred somewhere else. Um, and so it's, it's, um, it's really something that, you know, when you're not involved in the system, you just have no idea just how, um, how inhuman it is that, that, that the system has been built up to do and it's doing its job. Um, just the way it's set up to do. So um, when we talk about prison abolition, it's not um, it's not just because we think, oh, you know, that would be a great thing to do. It's because people are are being treated um, and have been treated um, just in inhumane ways for for way too long. So thank you for bringing that up, Meg. Yeah, yeah, that's one reason we have one staff person who only keeps up with our 1,100 incarcerated members' addresses. Yeah, if you if you lose them in a moment, you might never find them again. Exactly. And they are, as you said, moved randomly all yep. over state, out of state, uh, wherever somebody and, wants. Them. And not to bring us too far down that rabbit hole, if if I may, but we have a, a member of the congregation I serve here who just this Sunday um, telling us he is a doctor and he specializes in, um, well, he volunteers uh, to, uh, to help people with legal cases. So he works with a lot of asylum seekers who've been tortured um, and he helps them document that um, as a neurologist. Um, but he also uh, is now working with um, someone who's on federal death row in Indiana. Um, the federal death row is, is in Indiana. And apparently um, this administration has announced that it intends to resume the execution of prisoners on federal death row after 
several presidents of different uh, political affiliations all had halted them. And uh, so, you know, I was just talking with someone who was working with federal prisoners to try and get their executions uh, stayed um, because it's it's a horrible system. So, yeah, well, but Christina, you you had things to round up. I do. So I do have a couple of good good news roundups. Um, I just wanted to give a shout out for the Unitarian Universalist Association's um, social media managers, um, particularly their Facebook managers, are just putting out some really really great. Um, social media posts almost daily, like roundups of really interesting reading, um, you know, just all sorts of social commentary, um, and then are, you know, staying in it when they're getting hit with some really kind of um, tough comments as to their choices of what they're, what they're putting out there. Um, and that, that doesn't come with, you know, not a little bit of uh, social and emotional um, investment and time and energy. And, um, and so I just really wanted to, to give it to, a shout out to those folks. Um, if I start naming them, I'm sure I'll leave people off. So I'm not going to do that. But um, just thank you so much for showing people how one of the ways we can use social media to live out our UU values. It's uh, really refreshing to see. And, they're one of the ones that I have liked, but also it's my see first um, in my news feed so that I can just really be able to be inspired um, on a daily basis. So thank you all. And then the second thing I wanted to uh, give a shout out to is, is the Association for Unitarian Universalist Music Ministries, who has come to a memorandum of understanding um, with the UUA for um, their members to provide services at General Assembly. And if you haven't been following this, um, it has been true that um, our music professionals have not been fairly compensated at General Assembly um, for many, many years. And um, this past year, I think um, things just kind of came to a head and um, the association said, no, you know, we're not going to continue to work this way. And I'm probably paraphrasing a lot of things here. Um, and that's my paraphrase, please. <laughs> um, but they have announced that they've come to memorandum understanding, which will allow um, them to provide services at Providence GA, um, which is what everybody was working towards. So shout out to them and to the UUA for coming to the table and saying, let's really look at what's there and um, what is living out our values. So I'm excited because I love the music at GA and I'm, I'm looking forward to it at Providence. It's good modeling for our congregations um, when they hire professionals of all stripes. So I was also happy to see that. So Aisha Hauser, I'm gonna turn today's show over to you. Um, so along with, uh, just to continue what you all were talking about with folks who are incarcerated, they get their um, vote, voting rights taken away uh, for really no apparent reason. I mean, to continue, obviously, uh, if you see the movie 13th, uh, really to uphold that not everyone gets to be a whole person if somehow they violated the law. So today's topic is the fifth principle. We have seven principles, hopefully eight soon. Uh, and our fifth principle is we affirm and promote the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. So our guest today, I'm very excited, is the Reverend Chris Rothbauer. Chris is a settled minister at Auburn Unitarian Universalist Fellowship in Auburn, Alabama. Chris also serves as a steering committee member for Trust, Transgender Religious Professional Unitarian Universalists Together. They live in Auburn, Alabama with their partner, a rescue beagle and a spoiled rotten cat. Aren't all cats spoiled and rotten? I don't know. That's, that's my stereotype of cats. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. It's glad. I'm very happy to be here from um, the beautiful Southern Alabama. So I, one of the things we talked about is starting with what uh, perhaps, I mean, it's only uh, one sentence, and, and what we mean, the, the definition of democracy and democratic process. Let's start there. Okay. Well, it's, 
I come from a background of philosophy and um, in philosophy, we love to debate what words mean to death until it um, can't be debated anymore. But what becomes very apparent when you look at political philosophy to me is that democracy is one of these words that we all think we know what we mean, but that, and most of us affirm that we want it, but um, very often what happens is we have very different definitions of what we mean by democracy. So I think it's important when we're having a discussion like this to step back and look at what we mean by democracy, because there are very different forms of democracy that are contradictory to one another. And uh, unless we have a definition ahead of time, I think um, it's gonna be difficult to talk about it any further. What democracy at its core means is rule by the people. Uh, so from there, the different forms of democracy interpret what does rule by the people mean? What does it even mean to say that the people um, rule whatever institution we're talking about? And most often, I think we typically either think about uh, direct democracy, which is the form of democracy that the ancient Greeks had, and or uh, a more form of electoral or representative democracy. Uh, where we elect our elected leaders who come and represent what they think or what they at least represent what we think. I don't think they always get it right what we all think at all. So, but there are many, many other different forms of democracy. There's even a form of democracy called totalitarian democracy, where the people elect a leader who is basically their dictator. Um, that is not what I mean by democracy this morning. Um, but um, I think it's important in defining this because I, I think all the current forms of democracy have um, very much have drawbacks and strong suits. And I think it's important to look at what we mean because if we're going to overcome what those drawbacks are, um, we need to know what we mean. Um, we, we thank you. And um, before we continue, I meant to name that Dr. Elias Ortega, Aponte Ortega, uh, is out sick. Meadville Lombard apparently maybe saw him happen over the uh, January midwinter uh, courses. So uh, he, um, unfortunately, he's not able to join us today. So that uh, Dr. Ortega is on the Commission on Institutional Change, which just posted a blog post about the fifth principle. So Chris, in terms of Unitarian Universalism, what would be a helpful definition for us to uh, work from and be on the same page with for today's discussion? What I think we ought to look at is for is articulating a um, type of inclusive democracy that takes the best of both direct democracy and representative democracy and makes room um, not only for those voices who are often heard, because that's one of the drawbacks of both direct democracy and representative democracy is that they often center the voices of those already in power, so that those are the only voices we hear. But I want an inclusive democracy that centers the voices of people who have been traditionally marginalized, uh, people of color, uh, people from sexual and gender minorities, uh, disabled folks, uh, class minorities, working class and poor folks. I want a democracy that doesn't just look at the needs of the people who already have what they need, but also takes into account what, um, but also takes into account what um, those folks on our margins need, who that actively listens to them, that actively gives them a voice in our, in the affairs of the institution. And I speak, when I say institution, I mean both our American institution and Unitarian Universalism. Well, I think that's um, an interesting place to bring in uh, Unitarian Universalist General Assembly as, as a governance place. Um, many uh, of our viewers might be familiar with um, the Fifth Principle Task Force, which um, was charged by the board with reviewing how to strengthen 
the democratic process at General Assembly, and I believe submitted its report to the UUA board in, I want to say 2010, um, because I joined the board in 2010, and it was right after that report had been uh, had been submitted. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, we had talked in the in the few minutes leading up to the show that both Christina and I have experienced being on the UUA board and Meg you will soon uh, we hope and um, uh, part of that is getting these reports and deciding what to do with it and and the Commission on Institutional Change asked us to to open that back up again uh, and and look at it that was one of the things they asked us to do and when we when the board that I served on did that, we found that um, the the reforms that were that were suggested in that report did not do what you were just just saying a moment ago, Chris. It did not, in fact, strengthen the voices of um, of people who are marginalized in Unitarian Universalism. It did not take into account the needs of marginalized communities uh, at General Assembly. And uh, one of the, the critiques of the, um, the, the suggestion that we move to a biennial General Assembly is that there are marginalized communities or communities of marginalized people in Unitarian Universalism that rely on General Assembly as a gathering place where there is critical mass uh, for their people. Uh, and to go to every other year cuts down the the number of times that that people have that critical mass, um, but also to cut down delegate numbers, uh, which was one of the things that was suggested to reduce the number of voting delegates um, without uh, a process to ensure that congregations are selecting delegates of color and transgender and uh, not gender non-binary delegates and and um, other uh, youth and young adult uh, delegates um, probably only ensures that the people making the decisions are wealthy folks of means who have the resources to get to General Assembly. So I throw that out without there actually being a question attached to it, um, but just for reflection on, I wonder what it means if, what it, what it might look like if Unitarian Universalism revisited strengthening our democracy through the lens that you just brought up, Chris. And anybody is welcome to chime so, in with thoughts so on that. To, to follow that train of thought, so then I came on the board after Michael. Michael was still on the board when we had um, delegates who were elected from each district. And I came on the board in the second year of um, the board, um, not the board, but the association intentionally um, reducing the number of um, trustees. So we no longer had trustees that were elected from particular districts. Um, we have at-large trustees, which is what we have now. We have elected officers, and then we have at-large trustees. Um, and one of the reasons to do that was not to reduce uh, representation because there was never an, an assumption. There was an assumption on some people's parts, but there was never an assumption that a district, a, a trustee from a particular district was representing that particular district. They were there to have a lens of what may go on in that district, but not to represent that, that particular district. And that kind of tracks along with the reasons why we have youth trustees. We want trustees who have a lens on youth issues, but they are not there to specifically represent um, any particular demographic any more than a trustee with a tip um, with some type of uh, particular identity, me being a Latina, I was not there to represent Latina, um, you know, ideas or or representation. I was there because I had um, some experience, but also a lens with that came with that lens. So I think it's important that 
that we also named that, you know, we were intentionally trying to make this shift um, to have not just more representative government, but government that, that actually was paying attention to what different type of lenses people brought to the table. Um, and then the second thing I'll say is that we then, I came onto the board when they already had a reimagining governance task force um, that had kind of come out of the, okay, we had this fifth, fifth principle um, report. We had the, the board uh, that Michael just mentioned who said, you know, that's not really getting us where we need to go. And so then we have this task force that said, okay, let's see what we can take from those principles and what we heard from the report and how can we, how can we take all of that and really try and get us where, where we wanna go. Um, and that evolution is now where we're at with um, trying some new things in General Assembly um, from last year and this year and, and what we're seeing in terms of governance and how we're trying to come together intentionally. Um, we have a comment from one of our um, fans, super fans, Kiana Perkins, who says, if we are not welcoming and then holding on to those marginalized groups, how are we going to invite them to GA? So talking about our brick and mortar spaces, um, and uh, I think Kiana continues, if we aren't holding marginalized people as sacred and valued in our brick and mortar congregations, inviting them to GA as a setup um, on white privilege, white guilt, assagement, and a disservice to everyone. Oh, I completely agree. Um, and I think the complexity is, what I've noticed is folks who bring up the fifth principle and the right to democracy just want to keep everything exactly the same and keep those you know we've always done it this way and look we voted and 125 people don't want the black lives matter sign so what if the 10 black and brown people who come to the congregation want it we voted and so one of the things i've said in in the congregation is we don't vote on people's humanity that's not a thing we're going to do um i get it you are uncomfortable 125 white people and this is the right thing to do based on what our values are and centering liberation and so what how do we name that democracy the just simply taking a vote and majority rules i mean we're not talking about which flavor ice cream we want to get for the social uh, this is about people's humanity and affirming those folks who will not be in the majority be in the majority most likely in our brick and mortar spaces and so what's the alternative what are some things that um have been proposed i don't i agreed going to every other year will not get us to center liberation especially of folks with target identities i mean I, we were t when you all were talking about prisons earlier i was thinking about well yes supporting the clf prison ministry and being pen pals and what would it look like if we galvanized to get folks the right to vote? Florida just, I, I don't even know if they're the only state, but one of the few states that once um, folks with records come out, they can now vote. But that took a fight. That took money and um, organizing. Well, and so, it's, not, it's not that simple in Florida either, since the Republican Is it ever though? Is, Florida, yeah, is, I mean. Is trying to block, is trying to put roadblocks in, in the way of folks who've served their sentences. Right. So, um, Lori, do you want to, um, I, I just saw your comment. I, would you be okay saying it? Um, well, I have a few things I'm, that are rattling around in my mind right now about this. One is um, I'm reminded deeply of the, the first part of the fifth principle, the right of conscience, and how that is somehow in conflict in my mind with democratic process too sometimes uh particularly uh I, I i live i came from indiana i lived there for 17 years and when mike pence was still the the governor there uh shortly after the supreme court ruled and legalizing same-sex marriage uh the 
ALEC type uh, legislative lobbyist groups said, okay, well now we don't have this cudgel, this wedge issue to work on. So they started uh, doing RIFRA. I don't know if y'all remember RIFRAs, RFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Acts that they tried to pass at the state levels uh, to keep this um, kind of fight uh, against people who are um, sexual and gender minorities in these various states. So um, that the core thing in a RIFRA fight is typically um, a right of conscience. You know, when you think about it, it's a, well, I, I don't believe in same-sex marriage, so why should I have to bake a cake for the, you know, this is the kind of standard trope that gets used. Why should I have to bake a cake for these people who are trying to get married, you know, in my business sort of thing? Because I my conscience pro prohibits me from this. And so religious exemption becomes this thing that can like nullify essentially you know, human rights, right? You know, right against discrimination and public accommodations and all kinds of things. And, and um, so that's one thing that's rattling around in my mind is how do we First of all, does right of conscience, when we as Unitarian Universalist body put it into our, one of our principles, did it mean something different then? <laughs> you know, and, and like what is the good part of the right of conscience that, that we voted on as a body to put into our principles and, and is it being turned and used in a different way now? Because there's actually right of conscience acts now, um, like laws that are trying to be passed to do all, all sorts of types of exemptions around reproductive rights, um, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity protections. I mean, all kinds of exemptions to these laws that are designed to protect um, human rights at a broad level. So I'm just curious if anybody has any commentary on that, because I don't know the history. I wasn't around when the fifth principle was adopted. I can't speak to the specific history of the fifth principle, but I can um, I can speak that um, you bring up some good points, Laurie, that um, point to a broad trend that we're seeing in the political landscape right now. And that's that um, political concepts that used to be associated with the left and progressive and liber liberal circles are now shifting to become cudgels of the right-wing political spectrum. Um, a, good, a very good example is free speech. In the 1960s, free speech was a huge issue on college campuses because leftists were fighting to be heard in college classrooms. Um, and today it's um, shifted to where it's now become um, the, a tool of right-wing uh, political propagandists who want to bemoan the fact that people aren't listening to them um, any longer. Um, but I, I bring up free speech as an example because I think the right of conscience is another one that's shifting. Um, it, if you talked about, I suspect if you talked about right of conscience in the 70s or 80s when these principles were being drafted, you would have heard about things like I have the right to for instance, believe that um, God exists or don't exist, exist, or that um, I have the right to believe that gay people have the right to exist uh, with all their full rights. I don't think you would have seen it used against people. And I think for me, that's where the line comes in, is if you're using your right of conscience to oppress people, versus if you're using your right of conscience to lift people up. Um, I think that's where it's good to have the fifth principle in conversation with the fourth principle, a responsible search for truth and meaning, in addition to being a free search for truth and meaning. But I think that um, even the language of who's being oppressed <laughs> is being used by the right tremendously, right? I mean, um, that to not get your way on, you know, because if you're used to having 100% and now you only have 95, you, you've lost something, right? And so that 5% becomes oppression that you've lost, you know, you used to dictate 100% of what everyone, everybody should do. And now you, now 5% has been, you know, chipped away at. And so 
I think that's where perspective is so important, you know, and, and it just feels like to process. Yes, there's loss. There is loss. If you're used to being able to say whatever you want to say, wherever you want to say it, consequences be damned, you've lost that right, (laughs) you know, Um, and now I'm speaking within Unitarian Universalism, but you know, what do you gain? How much more do we gain by like having diverse voices? And it's, um, this is really complicated, y'all. I'm just sitting here listening. Like Michael, I was listening to what you said. And then Christina, I remember when the board had 26 people on it, how completely unwieldy it was. And yet I feel like there's a way that People knew who their district, we don't have districts anymore either. People knew who their district person was and, you know, they talked to that person and, and it was not a particularly representative board in terms of, um, I mean, it was similar to GA who could afford to be on the board. And those of you who've been on it know what a sacrifice it is to put all that time in on a volunteer job. Um, so yeah, I, I, um, I'm really sitting with, and I'm also wondering, Michael, with what you said about GA being a gathering place for people of color and other oppressed people, if we wouldn't do better to have alternative gatherings every other year for people to get together with their people and then have, you know, a a large gathering every second year. I don't know. I just, um, I'm sitting here thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be the moderator. And I, this is complicated. (laughs) It's really complicated. And I think that we see this um, thank you, Chris, for bringing up the, you know, the free speech, the, the right to free speech in our congregations, because I hear this a lot because I, you know, I go out and do consulting at congregations. And so often the first thing I hear when there is conflict is um, we haven't been heard, um, which was so much something that came from you know, the left of, you know, we need to have, particularly minority left or marginalized community left, of we need to have, we need to have a voice at the table, we need to be able to be heard, um, you know, where our voices aren't reflected. And so now I go into majority white congregations, and I hear white folks saying, you know, we're not being heard. And I, I, you know, always solicit feedback, okay, tell me more about that. And so often I hear, well, I, you know, I did get up and speak at the board meeting and I did get up and speak at the congregational meeting and I did write, you know, to the to the board president and the minister and I we did have these cottage conversations and I got to, you know, stand up and say what I what I would needed to say. Um, and I think there's a difference, you know, educating our folks is there's a difference between not being heard and not being listened to, meaning not somebody is not acting on what you are saying. And, and for so long, white folks in our congregations are used to their feeling of being heard meant that what they said was acted on immediately and without question. And so now it doesn't feel like they're being heard um, because <laughs> it's not being acted on, right? We, we are hearing you. We're absolutely hearing what you're saying. And what you're saying is fundamentally um, antithetical to what we are trying to get towards a liberated people. And that is hard to hear. That's, that's hard. You know, talk about not being heard. That's hard to hear, especially when you're so used to being listened to. Um, And so I think that, you know, getting back to that free speech and how, you know, what's the difference between free speech? You can have free speech. It doesn't protect you from not having any consequences to that speech, right? And so if there's consequences to that speech that you're not really happy with, that's a choice. You know, it's a choice when somebody like me and Aisha go out and say the things that need to be said, said we know that there's consequences for that um, and, and have lived those consequences. So I think that, um, yeah, some Kiana said, heard is code for centered. Um, and I think that that's absolutely, um, you know, what we're trying to, what we're trying to, to say and what we're trying to then say and move past. So we have a robust live conversation happening over um, on YouTube and 
I just wanted to, to read some of these comments into the into the record if as it was. And there's there's actually some questions uh, in them too. So I'm going to save the question for last. But Katie Resendez says. Elections are not the only or even the best tool of democracy. So often we rely on election processes and we give the results a sense of righteousness. We end up with tyranny of the majority. Um, Suzanne Skubik in Trilligator writes, uh, I thought you might be discussing GA today. Yes, we are. Since the Commission on Institutional Change came out with that recent statement about considering change to our decision-making structures. Um, and uh, Shige Sakurai, uh, former guest on, on this program, uh, is wondering, uh, to Asia's point about incarcerated folks voting, uh, could we start within? And Shige wonders, uh, Shige writes, I'd like to know how incarcerated CLF members get to participate in CLF governance. Um, do they get to vote for board members, et cetera? And is curious, especially since CLF bylaws let the board hire a new senior minister without a congregational vote. How will the congregation be involved in the process, even if it's not through formal votes? I think those are questions for you, Meg, as our senior minister. They are, and I will tell you, um, I am completely out of the search process. So I don't know. I know that a questionnaire went out to all the members, but I don't know if there will be Zoom meetings or other gatherings to talk to people. I would say uh, write to Aisha Ansano um, or other, Lori, what, you have an idea? Um, they, you can write to the search committee at search at clfuu.org to offer your commentary and questions and they will respond. We, we do have all that set up and we have a, a good search committee that are in process of, of uh, getting us uh, on the right track there. And I, so I am completely out of that. The trouble with um, involving incarcerated members in decision-making, and it is a huge thing that we talk about a lot, is that we can only use snail mail to reach them. And it's very, very time consuming. As we mentioned, they get moved around. So we often are in the position of, you know, it just takes an incredible amount of time everything that we do with them, the classes, the pen pals, all of that is tediously slow. And um, so we send out, you know, mailings, but no, there won't be time in between. I think, I believe this will be true, what the search committee does and getting feedback um, from them. We, um, whenever we can, we have them vote on anything possible. Like two years ago, we asked them what they would like us to take to General Assembly as, as their issue. And you may remember this, we kind of had in mind religious freedom, but that isn't what they said. They said privatization of healthcare was their number one concern. And so we did an action of immediate witness um, because of what they voted for. We love to offer them votes whenever we can about anything, but unfortunately time often means that we're asking them more for blessings, um, which, which I regret. I just don't know. We, we would have to have like four months turnaround for every decision in order to do it differently. And, and that's part of how oppression works, right? Um, I, think, I think, Meg, you bring up a, a really important distinction though, right? Um, who gets to cast the final vote might not be as crucial if the process leading up to what gets voted on is actually inclusive. Um, you know, if we're, if we're voting on things like this really inclusive statement A or this really inclusive statement B that are, that are both grounded in some sort of accountable conversation, um, like the actual vote becomes less, less, important than the process of, of what gets voted on. So I appreciate, Meg, that what I heard you say is that CLF um, tries to represent their, the voices of our incarcerated members when we can on the, on the you know, at GA and, and in other places. I wonder what it would mean for the GA agenda. I mean, I know that like we've tried different things now at GA in terms of having conversations and, and more, you know, open processes, but I wonder maybe we need to flip the process on its head and vote on less stuff 
<laughs> I don't know. Oh, I'm throwing stuff out now. No, well, that's actually what they're trying to do these past couple of GAs is to vote on less things and have more conversations on um, on what is the few things that are up for voting on. So really trying to to limit that and to have more intentional conversations. Two year, two three years ago, it was just turn to your neighbor conversation for two minutes, and we realized that that wasn't enough. Um, there wasn't enough time, and also, um, typically, people were sitting with people who thought the same way that they did uh, about a particular topic. And so, last year, they were more intentional. Last year, or the year before, I can't remember about actually moving into the program um, time breakout groups that were facilitated conversations um, about particular topics um, so that people could share, um, delegates could share, um, you know, actual conversation about something that wasn't just an action of immediate witness, you know. Um, and so I, I think, you know, they're trying to, trying to move towards a happy medium of everybody getting to say what they want and still being able to have a process for governance and decision making. I wanted to lift up the comment that it would be amazing if uh, CLF could work on voting rights and I couldn't agree more. You know, um, it would be amazing if we could do so many things. Right now we have 1100 incarcerated members and a tiny staff trying to even stay in touch with them and do what we do. And it, we estimate that it costs about $150 per incarcerated member to do what we do. And um, of course they don't make any money. And so I'll just tell you, um, we need money. I mean, I'll say this on behalf of whoever's coming in after me, sustainability for this ministry is really problematic. And um, uh, I appreciate all, all the, Panelists here have given money, you know, I mean, and, and people give what they can, but um, we just did incorporate CLF separately so that we can try to get some grants, but most of the grants for prison ministry go to fundamentalist Christian ministries, and most of the secular money won't go to a ministry. So we are trying our best to fund this better so that we can do more advocacy work, but at this point, we are proud to be able to do what we can. And I will lift up the people in North Texas and the North Texas UUs who decided that they should raise the money to support the prisoners, the incarcerated members from North Texas. And they're having a big celebration on Saturday and they did that. And so, you know, that helps us when we get a little boost like that to do the basics. It gives us more money because yes, we want to stop mass incarceration. We, we want to fight privatization. We want all of these things that our members desperately need. So yes, I, I agree, it would be awesome. I wanted to uh, go back to a comment, Chris, you made about the fourth principle, the search for truth and meaning informing the fifth one. And so, I mean, GA is where a general assembly is where our governance happens. And I wonder what it would look like if we connected the, what happens in our brick and mortar congregations or even in CLF with what happens at GA. Because I think by the time we get to GA, we've already, which has been named in the report from many years ago and the commission lifted up again, is you, it's not representative of, um, it's, it's not a rep representative group of people that end up at the annual general assembly. For many valid reasons, it's not a good or bad thing. It is uh, what it is. So what would it look like if, and I don't know, I'm asking this genuinely not knowing, um, what would it look like to have a more um, responsible search for truth and meaning? Almost like you, you're not allowed to engage in principle five before you engage in principle four. I'm going to mandate that because people take what I say as mandates. So there it is. Um, Chris, any thoughts? <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've heard it said that the ordering of the principles was completely happenstance, that it didn't that um, it wasn't intentionally like that, but you know, I 100% believe that a search for truth and meaning comes before we can ever 
how how can you even decide there are infinite choices in the world how can you ever decide what you're going to do if you haven't engaged in your search for truth and meaning um you well, i mean i my folks laugh when i quote this song but there's an old lee i think it's an old lee greenwood song you've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything um and you really do um, if you don't know where you stand from that search for truth and meaning, you will be tossed all which way. It's one of the first lessons I learned as an undergrad philosophy student is you get in and you get these great um, anthologies of uh, philosophers from all ages. And you read one and you think, that sounds amazing. And then you read another one that's contradictory and you think, that sounds amazing. Our brains like to make connections where they where there is none and or where there are contradictory um, strains. So yeah, um, we, we need to have a way to have these conversations, I think, nationally and even continentally and internationally. You know, I was on a different commission years ago to look at the, what was then general resolutions process. And we slowed it down. It used to be that every year there was a new one and we at least made there be study action issues so that there were some that you were just talking about. But again, there's, and, and it's in the fifth principle um, commission report, there's no accountability between the delegates and the congregation. So in most congregations, I'm thinking of the one I serve out in Minnetonka part-time, anybody who could afford to go to GA would be celebrated as, how, isn't that great that someone went? And whatever they did or didn't do there, no one would even really know much about. They probably would do a service when they got back and talk about what they liked. And it might or might not have anything to do with anything business related. And then another year would go on. And, um, and I think that is, unfortunately, the way it works for a lot of, uh, especially smaller congregations, um, especially congregations that are not near wherever GA happens to be every year. So I, I, think, I think bolstering that accountability between the delegate and the congregation would be amazing, but I have no idea on the planet. Other denominations do that. They do, you know, they really, it's a big deal to be a delegate if you're in some denominations. And it's not like because you can afford it and you have the time off. Well, and I think that goes back to, if you look in the agenda of the, um, of the report, um, it's because we're the only ones that don't subsidize fully the delegates um, attending. So if if you're you know if your church or your uh, national organization is saying to delegates, yeah, we're going to fully subsidize you in in all the ways it takes to get there, then then yeah, it becomes a big thing to be able to go. Um, and and I can see. That was one of the small things on the report. It said, you know, that there was no subsidizing of our delegates. And I'm like, well, it's actually not really true. Um, the UUA does a lot of subsidizing of General Assembly um, in, you know, in their efforts to try and make it more financially accessible. Um, so it may not be that we're subsidizing every single delegate, you know, like sending them to be able to go. There is a lot of money uh, and resources that the UUA tries to put out there. I, I will give it up for them for that um, in, in trying to do that. And, and the other thing I'll, I'll give a shout out to the UUA Board of Trustees is they are deeply, um, in my experience, um, concerned about linkage and concerned about trying to figure out how to be accountable to um, not just Unitarian Universalism, but the member congregations, um, because there are many sources of their authority. The member congregations are one of them and an important one, but it's not the only one. Um, and I, I think there, sometimes it feels like the, the Board of Trustees is almost more um, concerned about that than the delegates are. Um, you know, in terms of being the delegates being uh, accountable to their congregations. Um, so somehow, you know, balancing that out would be great. Um, I, I, I know board that I've been on or observed would, would think that that would be a bad thing. One of the things that I, it's been rattling around in my brain is that this um, 
tension between the individual and the collective is really at the core of what we're talking about today. And so I'm reminded that a tenant of white supremacy culture is individualism. And that is something we really need to be guarding against. Um, the other thing that is tying into that is this idea of the order of the principles, right? We start with inherent worth and dignity of each individual. And then we keep building on that um, to the point where we get to the collective, uh, the interdependent web of all of existence as our seventh principle currently. And, and then uh, one of the things I was told a while back was instead of thinking about them as a line, um, if we think about our, uh, I don't know if y'all can see this. Let me see if I can spotlight this. Um, if you think about it more as an arch of our principles, then the fulcrum or the cornerstone of the arch is the free and responsible truth for um, search and search for truth and meaning. Um, and we start with the inherent worth and dignity over here and end with our, and like the foundation is the individual and the collective. So I just found that fascinating as we, we were talking about um, kind of like the interaction of the principles and how they play in each other and how we hold them all in the web of, of what's important for us, as well as remembering that individualism really is, is when we give into individualist tendencies, we can really be reflecting um, the, the culture of white supremacy. Um, you know, it's something that Christina said made me think about um, the way that um, the way that we do governance in general. Um, and I feel like it's important to highlight it because it's any of us who are religious professionals and have had to deal with boards have experienced how um, agenda fatigue can actually de-incentivize people to be able to uh, fully participate. Um, my, my, folk, my board and my committee and ministry and I are currently reading Dan Hotchkiss's Governance and Ministry. And he talks about you need a board agenda that's four items or less um, because you can't talk very well about more than four items. People will start to tune out and it will become undemocratic because only people who are really invested in the agenda item will continue to participate. And it makes me think that it's one of these things that we really need to highlight as we're looking for ways to create inclusive democracy is how do we unclutter our general assembly agenda in a similar way so that um, we can focus on things like coming together and searching for our truth and meaning if we uh, want to really engage people in great discussion. I'm not sure that multiple plenary sessions over five days with a huge agenda is the best way to do it. I'm going to make a confession um, but before I was a religious professional, before I actually had congregations paying my way to General Assembly, I would look at the plenary agenda and decide which ones actually interested me and then just go off and search, walk the exhibit hall the rest of the time. Um, I think it's a real issue is how do we do that? How do we, how do we make that agenda more uh, democratic by making it less cluttered? Oh. Uh, people are great, making great comments as we go out and we need to end. <laughs> so, um, if you are on YouTube, read the comments. They're good. And uh, anybody else, last comments on this? I also just want to name real quick, free speech is not free for everyone. So that has always been a source of privilege for those already in power. So I just needed to name that. Tiny little item to put out in one sentence at the end of the show. <laughs> That's how I roll, Meg. <laughs> well, next week we're going to have a great show. I don't know what it is, but it's going to be great. <laughs> and Thank also, you. someone yeah. mentioned about the Commission on Institutional Change, and we are going to be doing some more engagement with their, them this yeah. spring, too. All that we can, yes. They've done a lot of good thinking on a lot of these issues. So 
we want to share, uh, learn it ourselves and, and share it. So thanks everybody. Thank you so much, Chris, for being with us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org.